And uh, we continue in our study through the book of Colossians. And our passage today begins in verse 12. It is only two verses. We will examine what is here for us. The book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 12, page 984 in your ESV Pew Bibles. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Almighty God, once again for this privilege we have to come under the ministry of the Word. And Lord, as I stand here in this sacred pulpit, I recognize, Lord, that I am not just a teacher, but I am a student along with the rest of the congregation as we sit at your feet seeking to learn from you, O Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit would instruct us and teach us, O Lord, and how we may better live for you and conform our lives to your will. We ask for forgiveness, O Lord, in advance for the failure in living up to the holy standard you've called us, but we look to thee for grace that we may be empowered to live the godly life that you've called us to. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you'd open the Bible to us, open our hearts and minds. May we receive from you wondrous things from your law. I pray that you'd anoint my heart and my mind and my lips, that you'd carry me along by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As the old saying goes, you dress to fit the occasion. I'm sure that you are happy I am not here in my pajamas today. And if I were here in my pajamas, you would think it would be quite odd. Some of you might even be offended at the lack of reverence for me as a pastor to show up in my pajamas. It is expected for me to wear a coat and tie when I show up to preach on Sunday, and I wear it not out of begrudgingly, but I know it's the expectation and it fits the occasion. We all have uh, expectations of how to dress Depending on your job, you may wear a uniform to work. If you're a nurse or a doctor, you show up to work in scrubs. You don't show up in a coat and tie or in jogging pants. If you are, um, if you are working also uh, in the business world, it is expected that you wear a coat and tie. Or as a woman, you expected to wear a dress suit, uh, a pants suit or a dress suit. Uh, if you're invited to a wedding, you understand that you show up dressed to fit the occasion. If it's formal, you wear formal wear. If it's a black tie event, you wear a a tuxedo. And if you go to the gym, you wear workout clothes. I think you get the point. And last but not least, hopefully we have a sense of the presence of God when we come to church on Sundays and that we dress to fit the occasion as well. As Christians, however, we have access to a more important wardrobe This wardrobe of the saints, it's a spiritual wardrobe. And as we'll see in our passage today, we are instructed, we are commanded to put on the new clothes that God has provided for us. 
And these new clothings, this new clothing is described as the characteristics which are fitting for those who are called to be God's people. Now, last week when we looked at our uh, previous text, we discussed how as believers we have a new identity in Christ Jesus. The old man has been put to death and we are new creations in Christ Jesus. And, and our identity is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. And so notice that the apostle in verse 12 then addresses the, the Colossian church and continues with that theme. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I think that's so important to understand those three phrases used to describe the Colossian church and in a sense describe all of us is chosen ones, holy and beloved. Because our identity in Christ encompasses these three phrases here or these three words, chosen by God, holy and beloved. Now I want you to think about those three terms because those three terms really are taken right out of the Old Testament. It was the terminology that God used to describe the nation of Israel in whom he had a covenant with. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 7 we read this, if you are a people, for you are a people rather, holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And so we realized in that same theme as Christians in the Colossian church, Paul is writing to these Gentile believers. They were not part of the nation of Israel. They were not Jewish by birth. They were Gentiles. They were former pagans. And they heard the gospel and they believed. And God, God essentially designates the same status of national Israel in the Old Covenant to these Gentile believers. The idea of being chosen and being holy and being loved is also encapsulated in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 3, when Paul opens up in a great exaltation, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You cannot understand your identity as a Christian apart from understanding that you've been chosen by God. Jesus said to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It is God who quickens the heart and enables us and who, who from eternity past points us to himself. It is the love of God which quickens us and that God's love is set on us. We are beloved in Christ Jesus and that we are holy. We are set apart. Christ Jesus set apart his people so that we may declare the excellencies of his glory. And so understanding our identity is very important to dressing to fit the occasion. If you know who you are, you're going to dress in the clothing of who you are. A dignitary doesn't walk around with with jogging pants or with rags, a dignitary wears clothes fitting for a dignitary, and we are sons and daughters of the king. Amen. We have a status that requires us to dress in a way that fits the occasion. 
Having said that, what is the clothing that we are to wear? The beautiful thing is it's been provided for us by God. You know, you think of the parable of the prodigal son. He ran away and he, he devoured his father's inheritance and lived a, a, a loose and, 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 and sinful life. And when everything was gone, he, he came home embarrassed and ashamed and the father clothed him with rich garments and with sandals and put a ring on his finger. And it was to show that God not only provides the garments of righteousness that cover our sin, but he clothes us daily and gives us what we need to live the Christian life. And so these articles of clothing in this divine wardrobe have been provided for us. And when we really look at the heart of these articles of clothing and the characteristics they describe, they point to the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us of what we are told in Romans 13 to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's look at these articles of clothing as we go through our closet. Number one, the first article of clothing is a compassionate heart, a compassionate heart. The King James Version translates this. Pastor Paul has his King James Bible open right now. The King James Version translates this as bowels of mercy. And this is actually a very uh, accurate translation of the original Greek, uh, uh, I can't even say, splankna. And it literally means bowels or entrails. It's the same word used in Acts 1.18 when the death of Judas Iscariot is counted and he hung himself and his bowels and entrails, his intestines, splayed out in the open field. And so why is such a word used here as bowels of mercy? Um, and what we have to understand is in the ancient world, the, the, the word bowels or entrails were used to describe the inner seat of our emotions. When you talked about someone's bowels, you talked about their, their emotional uh, uh, center and who we are. We're emotional beings. And we, we, emotions can be very strong. They could be uh, emotions of anger, as we saw this past week in our midweek Bible They could be joy. They could be passion. And, and emotions can be very powerful. And so the first garment of clothing uh, is speaking of this emotional inwardness of having compassion on other people. As one translation says, heartfelt compassion or tender-hearted mercy. It means that, that we are to put on the garment that, that looks at other people and deeply cares for others around us, that looks upon other people with mercy. Now, I want you to think about it because we live in a world that is absolutely merciless. Unfortunately, due to much evil in the world and due to the news showing us all the evil in the world, we tend to become very cold-hearted, very cynical, very distrusting. And as a result, we no longer look out for people or care about people because we're more concerned about self-preservation before helping someone. But as Christians, we are called to see the world in a different perspective. We're called to see the world the way God sees it. And the way God sees the world is that we are all made in the image of God. And when you look at humanity and you look at all the problems of humanity, what we're looking at is broken creatures. Broken, messed up creatures. And so, you know, when, when you, you know, drive down the street and you see a drug addict walking through the street and, and he's, he's dressed in rags and he's out of his mind, it's easy to look and say, look at that junkie, let's get away from him, Right. And we become cynical, and, and, and instead we're to look at that person. There's a human being made in God's image, and look at what sin has done to his life. 
Look at how sin has ravaged his mind. Look at how sin has disrupted his heart. Look at how sin has corrupted his choices. He's a disaster, and Satan is glorified in that disaster of a creature made in the image of God. See, compassion looks at people and realizes that that we're no better and that we could be in the same situation very quickly. We need to be more sensitive to the hurt and the pain of other people. We may not always understand, and I may not always agree. There's times where people will come to me and they're upset about something. I'm like, I don't see what you're upset about. And the cold-hearted response would be, get over it. But the tender-hearted mercy, the, the, the heartfelt compassion says, I don't understand where you're at. I don't know if I necessarily agree where you're at, but, I, but I'll stand with you and I feel for you and I'll pray for you. That's the kind of tender-hearted mercy, the, 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 the bowels of mercy that, that is being described here. It is to associate and see people in their hurt and pain and to, to meet them where they are, to serve them where they are, and to help them where they are. This is something that's lacking in our society today, particularly as we live in an individualistic society where it's, in some sense, survival of the fittest. We don't often look to the needs of those who are hurting and struggling. But I could tell you this, the scripture is very plain that this is a true garment that we are to put on, that we must yield to and, and clothe ourselves in. First John 3.17 says, If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. It tells us also in in Luke chapter 6, it, it, Jesus describes how uh, anyone can treat people nice who are nice to them, but true Christian love, true Christian mercy is ministering to the needs of those who can't do anything in return for us. In Luke 6, it says, if you love those who love you, Luke 6.32, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those to whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good. Lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great in heaven, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is, listen to this, kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You see, mercy becomes the basis of which we show the rest of these attributes. We're going to see kindness and love and doing good for others. It flows from a heart of looking at people with compassion. So often it's easy to judge people where they're at. But more importantly, we're to be if God is merciful, if God is kind to the ungrateful and evil, who are we to say, uh-uh, I'm not going to be that way? Secondly, the next piece in our wardrobe as we're going through the closet is kindness, kindness. Um, the Greek word for kindness can be translated also as goodness and gentleness, and it's used repeatedly throughout the Scripture to describe God. We just read it in Luke 6. God is kind to the ungrateful and evil. And so kindness uh, um, is, 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 a, is a characteristic and attribute of who God is. In Romans eleven twenty two. it says, note the kindness and severity of God. Or Romans 2, 4, it is the kindness of God that is meant to lead you to repentance. But the word, it's interesting, the root of the word actually comes down to a, a description for wine. 
And, and when we talk about the word in Greek for, for kindness, it, it was used to describe wine that was aged, right? Because when you have fresh wine, new wine, and you drink it, I don't know if you've ever had homemade wine, it's very bitter, it, it cuts, it's like, oh, that's like drinking vinegar almost. But aged wine that's, that's been sitting in a barrel for 20 years and then is poured out into a bottle and aged for another five years, that wine is smooth as butter. I don't know if you've ever had an expensive glass of wine. I have, and there's something that cannot be, uh, 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 I can't articulate what a smooth glass of wine is. And that's exactly the word that's used here to describe kindness. It is a word that means a smooth and mellow texture. Wine that's aged is smooth, it's mellow, it goes down easy, it's not biting. And so in describing this next garment of kindness that we're to put on, it describes that of someone with an easygoing disposition, someone who's smooth and mellow, not on the exact opposite would be someone who's harsh, demanding, unreasonable, and rigid. And so this, and this is uh, the very opposite, where we are called to put on kindness. Notice the same word is used also in Matthew 11.30, when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and light. That word easy is the same word translated for kindness. It's in, it got, and, and I want you to think about that because when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, it's easy and light in comparison and contrast with the yoke of the Pharisees, which is like a burden to carry. It's heavy. It, it, it's crushing. It's demanding. It's cruel. But the yoke of Christ is easy. Christ does not, Christ is not a dictator. He's not a, 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 a he does, he's not cruel, but he is kind. He's gracious. He's gentle. In the same way, we are called. And by the way, when we look at all these articles of clothing, the reason why we have to put it on is because it's not natural to us. We are not naturally kind. We are not naturally merciful. These are, these are attributes of God, not, not of, of man. It is our, natu- our natural disposition to be unkind. It is our natural disposition to be unmerciful. And so to put it on requires that we see something bigger than ourselves. It's a change and a shift of our attitudes. And so as you look at yourself, are you someone who's easygoing? Are you mellow? Are you sweet like aged wine? Or are you harsh and uneasy to please and bitter and a little bit salty? Actually, there's, some, there's a t-shirt that people wear. It says salty on it. Right? It's a phrase that's used often to describe people who are grumpy or difficult to get along with. You call them salty. They describe older people, salty old men. My daughter, my youngest daughter says, you're being a little salty, Dad. And I put on the kindness a little more. Um, the third item in our closet, the third item in our closet, and this is probably one of the most important ones, is humility, to put on humility. Perhaps... Um, this is the, the one that undergirds all of them. And in fact, the Apostle Peter in his epistle says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5. Now, I want you to remember those words because we repeat them often. God opposes proud people. That means that he is actively working against those 
who are arrogant and who are proud and who are lofty and puffed up. On the other hand, God is gracious to those who are humble in their disposition. So I think it's very important that we understand this distinction because we really don't want God to be our enemy and working actively against us. We don't want to be in a position where God is resisting us, right? We want to receive the grace of God. And so therefore, pride is something we want to put away and we want to put on humility. So, so what does it mean to be humble then? I think this is an important question because we, we want to be humble. And I, and I think this is the most, I think one of the ironies about humility is this. Is someone who thinks that they're humble is usually very proud. The person who proclaims, I'm a humble person, that's the one you got to watch out for. On the other hand, it's the person who says, I'm proud, and I need to deal with that pride. That's the person who is truly humble. You know, we also, there's a lot of people who go around with what we call worm theology, right? The worm theology... I'm such a worm, I'm such a worthless person, uh, God have mercy on me. You know, and it sounds very spiritual, oh, how humble that person is. But, but at the end of the day, how much of it is designed to make people think you're humble? You know what being humble is? Being humble is having an accurate self-assessment of yourself. That's what really being humble is. It's, a, it's an accurate self-assessment of who you are. And very few people have that. An accurate self-assessment knows who we are before God and who we are before other people. We do not exalt ourselves above God because in the end of the day, whenever we exalt ourselves above God, we're saying we know better than God. When we exalt ourselves above our fellow man, we have a high and lofty view of ourselves and that's when we mistreat other people. When you think you're better than other people, you will mistreat the people you think you're better than. And so Christ set for us the perfect example of humility. The Apostle Paul tells us to look to this example in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 8. Listen to what the Apostle says as he describes not only what humility is, but the model of humility. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I want you to think about those two words, selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition is really characterizes the, the proud person. It's a person who lives for self, and everything revolves self. It's what's in it for me. How do I benefit? Is it too dangerous? Do I put, how much risk am I taking? It's all about self-preservation and self-ambition. But rather, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's what humility is. It's counting others more significant than yourself. It means that, it doesn't mean that you think low of yourself. It doesn't mean I'm a worm. It means that you don't think about yourself. It means that you think of other people. And you consider, how can I meet the needs and, and serve and, and lift up and encourage other people? It's the, the exact opposite. The proud spirit says, what are you going to do for me? You're not doing enough for me. I want, I want, you, you I, I'm entitled, you owe me. That's the spirit of the proud person. And so humility at the core is death to self. Now notice what it says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Here's where the mind of humility comes in, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not 
count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You have to look no further for an object lesson of humility than to look at our Lord Jesus Christ. He emptied himself. The God of the universe emptied himself of all of his glory, of all of his power, of everything. He had the worship of angels and took the form of a lowly human carpenter from Galilee. And he served people and he gave of himself to people endlessly and sacrificially his entire life. He served his mother and his brothers and his sisters working in the carpentry shop, providing and at 30 years old when called to public ministry, healed the sick, preached the good news, spent countless hours ministering and never once did anything from a selfish perspective. Everything was done for the good of others. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And his ultimate expression of humility was his death on the cross. How humiliating was the death on the cross that the Son of God would be stripped naked and whipped by sinful creatures, the creatures whipping their creator and crucifying him to a wooden cross and driving nails through his hand and spitting at the creator and mocking the creator. How humiliating, how degradating. But he did it all without a complaint. Because he, it wasn't done in vain. It was done for you and done for me. You see, at the core of humility is love. You see, when we're humble, when we're humble, we follow Christ. And humility is the clothing that truly shows Christ-likeness in us. God doesn't care about how flamboyant you look, how sharp you look. He cares about how humble you appear. The clothing of humility is very important. The fourth garment is meekness. Meekness is the next garment. And meekness is a quality that is often used in the Bible to describe to the greatest, right? Meekness is used to describe Moses. He was the meekest man in all the earth. Numbers 12 tells us, but of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is also considered meek. Follow me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, the Lord Jesus says. So what does it mean to be weak? Because most part, a lot of people have issues with this word. Oh, meekness, you want me to be a weakling. Meekness is weakness, and you want me to be a doormat for people, and you know, that's, and that's the general response people have, right? And I've, I've, I've heard this from great amounts of people. Weakness, meekness is not weakness. Let me, let me make that so clear. Meekness is strength under control. Jesus Christ was not weak. Jesus Christ, as he walked this earth, could snap his finger, as he told Pontius Pilate, and a legion of angels would come and kill you and everyone. <laughs> this was, this, Christ had the power to speak to the wind and waves and they obeyed him. There is nothing limited about the power of the Son of God and his humanity. He could have done anything he wanted. He could have split the earth in half and walked away and it would have all been over. Meekness is power under control. 
It doesn't mean that you can't retaliate and hurt someone. It means that you will not because you trust in God. You know, oftentimes children can really test your patience. And as parents, it could seem weak when you don't respond or retaliate in a fashion that would seem equitable. But it's not that you're weak. It's that you look at the little kid and say, I could, I could crush them if I really wanted to. But I love my kid. I'm not going to crush them. Police walk around with a with a firearm on their side. And there's other people who walk, carry a firearm on their side. They may walk away from a dispute and say, oh, you're weak, you're, you're, you know, you don't have, you're not tough, you're, you're a wimp. Really? You know, sometimes you got to be careful because you don't know who's carrying a gun sometimes. You pick a fight with someone, they could shoot you. There's a lot of that going on today. Now, meekness is when we truly understand that true strength, true power is when we can control ourselves. Self-control is really at the core of meekness. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, for he rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Anybody could lose their temper. That's not strength. That's weakness. We're called to be meek. We're called that you overlook the little things in life. You don't, you don't respond to everything. It's not easy to do sometimes because you're in the flesh. But you need to put it on. You need to put on meekness. Again, this is not natural. Humility is not natural. Meekness is not natural. Our natural disposition is to retaliate and respond in the flesh to, to anything. But meekness looks to Christ who was reviled and he reviled not in return. Fifthly and finally, the final item in our sacred wardrobe is that of patience. And we spent all Wednesday night talking about that one. It's how these things blend in one to the other. I feel like from the sermons to the Bible studies, they all kind of mesh. And I think God is trying to tell us something when they all mesh. And that is we need to put on patient spirits. We need to put on long-suffering spirits. Because ultimately, when we speak of patience, we have to look to God. And it's God who's patient. Think of how much God endures with us. Think of how patient God is with sinful humanity who rebels against him day after day. Think of how patient God is for those who blaspheme his name day after day. Think of how God, how patient he is with you and I, blood-bought sinners who still mess up. And who still sin, and who still doesn't don't get it right. God is patient. The refrain often repeated in the Old Testament is the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Exodus 34, 6, Psalm 103, 8, Psalm 145, 8. Arthur W. Pink defines God's patience as the patience of God is that excellency which causes him to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. God is patient, not willing that any of us should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But his patience and kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, not to further rebellion. God does not have a hair-trigger temper. Thank God he does not. 
thank him. Thank you, Lord. And so we must likewise pattern ourselves and clothe ourselves in the garments of Christ and be patient as well. Patient while bearing up under difficult circumstances. Patient while sustaining injuries from other people and insults and hardship. Patient when the foibles and shortcomings of others seem to irritate and get in the way. Patient when things are not in our control and we do not cannot manipulate the situation that we like. And all of it comes down to this. How do we put on all this clothing? How do I put on humility? How do I put on patience and meekness and, and kindness and mercy? How do I put these things on if it's not natural to me? I was asking myself this question and Pastor Paul gave me the answer last night. It's one word, surrender. It's surrendering our wills to God. It's saying, not my will, but your will, God. It's, it's surrendering and saying, I'm not going to try to do this my way anymore. My way doesn't work. I'm surrendering. I'm laying down my weapons. I'm laying down all that I think I know is true. And I'm completely giving myself to you, God. Clothe me with these clothes. I want to put them on and I want to live in a way that pleases you. Surrender requires death to self. Putting to death the old man. Because you cannot put on new clothes when you're still wearing the stinky, dirty rags of the old man. So what are the results of the new clothing that we put on? Well, there's, there's two things that are brought out to us in our passage as we get back to Colossians. We're looking at this. It's kind of weird because we're going to look at the results and then the final article, sort of like the icing on the cake. But in, in, in chapter 3, we're putting on all of these, um, these divine garments that have been provided for us. And then verse 13 says, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. You see, at the end of the day, when you are putting on uh, uh, bowels of mercy, when you're putting on kindness, when you're putting on patience, when you're putting on meekness, when you're putting on humility, then you will be able to bear with one another and forgive one another. And there are two different aspects. Bearing with one another speaks about how we deal with people on an ongoing basis. The truth of the matter is we're all different people and it's not easy to get along lots of times. We're all sinful, broken people and we're, we got messy lives and some of our lives are a little more messier than others. And so, you know, put any group of sinners in close proximity and eventually you're going to annoy each other. You're going to irritate each other. You're going to upset each other. That's, that's life. Unless you live by yourself in the mountains, you are going to be irritated and annoyed by other people. But love is not easily annoyed, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. And bearing up with one another means that we tolerate and we overlook and we cover the shortcomings. Love covers a multitude of sins. It means we, we, we withstand and overlook the little foibles of life and we, we let things go. We don't try to correct and, and address everything that we perceive as wrong. It goes back to that aspect of kindness, of being easy and mellow. And then finally, to be forgiving. 
to be forgiving. Notice what the text says. It says, you must forgive. Because Christ has forgiven you, you must forgive. What this is telling us is that as Christians, you cannot and you are not entitled to hold a grudge. You cannot have an axe to grind with another Christian, with another image bearer of God, and be okay with God. It's impossible. If you have an axe to grind, if you have a grudge, there is a major issue in your heart. We must forgive. Why? Because Christ has forgiven you so much. Yeah, but you don't know what that person has done to me. You don't know what they continue to do to me. So what? What have we done to Christ? What have we done to God? You see, you cannot forgive until you understood how much you've been forgiven. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 21. And Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times, 77 times. Or 70 times seven. What Peter is basically asking Jesus is, listen, there comes a point where I, I draw the line, right? You know, I don't have to forgive anyone. I can be angry and, and be bitter, right? I'm, it's, Jesus says, no, you got it all wrong, Peter. You're to forgive 70 times 7. In other words, inf- infinitely. And he goes on to tell you a parable, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. And the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who had owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison till he should pay the last debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. His master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you have not had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's deep. I want you to notice three things. Number one, how much the servant was forgiven. He was, he was in a debt of 10,000 talents. And by the way, the word forgiveness is an economical term. It's a financial term. It's an accounting term. Right? So, so when, you, you know, when, when, when you have money that you owe and 
Let's say you work out a deal with the bank. I can't pay you back all the money. And they, they say, instead of giving us 2000 give us 1000 That's a forgiveness of the debt. That's the term. It's, a for, it, it's about releasing you from a debt that you owe. And so the word forgiveness is always related to a financial debt that's owed and that you're released from. And you have, so that's the first thing we have to learn. The second thing we want to see is that you were two people. There was this one guy who was owed an astronomical debt that could not be repaid. He pleaded for mercy, and the, and the master says, I will forgive you this debt. Now, the idea is that he should be just as forgiving and gracious to others. But when he saw one of his fellow servants who owed him very little in comparison, he became violent. He began to choke him. He wanted to kill him and say, you, you better pay me what you owe. He said, I can't do it now. No, 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 I'm not giving you. No, you're going to jail and you will pay. You will pay what you owe me. Notice, it says also, verse 26, the servant fell on his knees. This is the one who's forgiven much. Imploring says, have patience. Notice the word patience. And I will pay you everything. And out of pity, which is mercy, the master of that servant released him and forgave him. We talked about kindness and patience and mercy. That's the bedrock of forgiveness. You can't forgive if you're impatient. You can't forgive if you're unkind. And you can't forgive if you're not someone who looks upon this person with love. The bottom line is this. If you can't forgive others, then you are not forgiven. It's not saying that you'll lose your salvation. But it's saying if you have been forgiven by Christ, then you must forgive. You have to let it go. Forgiveness means completely releasing the person from the debt of injury. The debt is personal injury. You've hurt me. You've injured me. You've taken something from me, whether it's my dignity, whether it's my honor, whether it's my happiness, or you've maybe taken something I love from me. And, and, the, and the, the natural response is revenge. I want to get even with you. and I want you to suffer for what you've taken from me. But the Christ-centered response is, I forgive you. I release you. You don't owe me anything. The forgiving person doesn't five years down the line say, remember what you did to me? When they get into an argument. The forgiving person doesn't hold it as something over you, making sure that you walk the straight line. The forgiving person wipes the slate clean, just as Jesus wiped. Imagine if Jesus did that. Imagine if every time we mess up, God looks at us and says, remember what you did? Remember all the awful things you did? God doesn't count any of our sins against us. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our sins. And so what prevents us from forgiving? Because instead of being kind, we're cruel. Instead of being humble, we're proud. Instead of being patient, we're short-tempered. Instead of being merciful, we're merciless and cruel. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Surrender your heart to him. And I conclude with this one point. Above all this, you have to put on love. It's, it's what brings it all together. It's like, it's like the, you, know, you know when you put on a nice outfit, right? 
I could put on a coat, pants, shirt, but it's the tie that finally makes the outfit, right? It's, it's the one thing that just kind of blends it all together, brings it together. Not that I like wearing ties personally, I really don't, but, you know, in dress, there's usually that one element that'll bring everything together. And in this case, what does the Paul say? He says, and put on love, the one that binds it all together. This is, this is the article of clothing that essentially makes you able to be kind and patient and humble because it is, it is the love of God that's been shed abroad in our hearts. You have to first have the love of God in you because God is love. And Christ who dwells in you, it is the love of God that saturates you, that enables you to put on these articles of clothing because number one, you love God and you don't want to dishonor or displease God because if you don't love God, none of this is possible. It's all, forget about it, game over. You can't do it if you have no love in your heart for God. But then it's a love that flows for other people and the love that flows for other people is going to come from the love of God. When we experience this love of God, it will change our disposition towards others. It's the most important item in our wardrobe. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 says, Love is patient and kind. See, it brings it all together. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Well, let me conclude. The ancient world of Colossae was a cruel world. These attributes of love and patience and kindness and meekness, compassion, humility, they were not seen as virtues in the ancient world. They were seen as character flaws, limitations, and weaknesses. Remember, this was a world of slavery. It was a world of gladiators who butchered each other in the Colosseum for entertainment. It was the Roman Empire when Caesar ruled the world by force. Christianity was a paradigm that was completely opposite of everything that the world was at that time. And while the world is a little more civilized today, it is still a savage world. It is still a world where the human nature of pride and arrogance and cruelty and short-temperedness and violence still rule. In today's world, we are called to take off the dirty old clothes that reflect this culture and put on the new garments, the new clothing, the garments and wardrobe of the saints that Jesus Christ has provided for us. Remember who you are, my brothers and sisters. Remember your identity. Remember that you are chosen by God, that you are holy and you are beloved. And when you know who you are, you will dress to fit the part. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, Lord, I want to ask for forgiveness for myself as I preach this sermon. I realize how often I fail to put on these clothes, how often I fail to access the divine wardrobe. And so I confess, not just for myself, but for all here, but we have all fallen short, Lord.
But thank you for your word, which reminds us here, Lord. It reminds us that this life is not impossible. It's not natural. It doesn't come naturally to us. And so we must, by faith, surrender our wills to yours, O Lord. And so I pray that you'd move upon us today. Change our hearts. Break us. Humble us. We would love to see revival, Lord. As the revival in Kentucky is made spread through this whole country, but in, in, in order to have revival, O oh Lord, we need repentance. We need brokenness. Who do we think we are, O oh Lord? Have mercy on us. Equip us, O oh Lord. And I pray that you would glorify yourself through your people. In Christ's name, amen. amen.